0: And let me pray just very briefly here. Lord, settle our hearts and help us to hear what you want us to know this morning. Uh, Father, really, we need you to make truth real to us. And I ask because of the text we're in this morning that seeing your son would become a greater love in our life that... uh, Bill's song this morning that we started out with, When Christ Returns, with shouts of acclamation. Lord, might the thought of that coming uh, inform our lives and our thinking and what we do and what we don't do, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are some issues that are sort of so uh, divisive that you can just predict an argument if you open the door. So if you're from an Arminian background and you want to pick a fight with a Calvinist, you just say that, you know, by my free will, the exercise of my free will, I became a Christian. And if you're a Calvinist speaking to an Arminian, you say, you know, by God's sovereign grace and predestination, I've become a Christian. This argument's been going on About 500 years, at least since the time of Luther. So if you want to pick a theological fight, just bring up election and free will. It's just a given. Dust hasn't settled on it and probably won't until we see Jesus face to face. Now, I don't know if it's a close second or a distant second, but there's another issue you can bring up that's sure to let sparks fly too, and that has to do with the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. The rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ a really divisive issue. If you read the Bible enough to sort of have some handle on the prophetic issues, you probably have a position on this. You know, when does Jesus come, 1 Thessalonians 4, and call Christians out of the earth? When does that happen? Is there anything on God's prophetic calendar that has to happen before that event, that event could come? Could Jesus call at any moment and take us out of this earth? Or are there other prophetic elements on God's calendar that need to happen first? And how does the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, how does that deal or tie in with the day of the Lord? That's a phrase that we'll see this morning, the day of the Lord. And and how do those tie with the second coming of Jesus? Is the rapture and the second coming, is that one thing? If they're not, how far are they divided? What does that look like? We're coming to this issue this morning because of the text we're in, in 2 Thessalonians 2. I'm going to walk us through a position this morning that I've actually done before. If you go online to the series in 1 Thessalonians, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, you'll hear some similar content there that may be helpful in clarifying some of the things we talk about this morning. Uh, The view, the thought, theological view on eschatology I'm going to walk us through this morning is called pre-tribulation dispensationalism. It's a lot of words. It just says there's a certain take on when Jesus calls us and how does that relate to other major issues on God's calendar, on God's timetable. Now, I want to be quick on the front end of this to say a few things along the way. No one has a view on the prophetic elements that is as seamless as any of us would like. That is, whatever our view is, there are passages someone could point out and say, what do you do with that? Or how does that work with with what you're promoting here? For sure. Also, in eschatology or the prophetic elements of Scripture, eschatology just means last things when we're studying those last things. Um... It's a secondary issue. This is not, in line and Lamb's statement of this is, these are the things we believe, it's not in there. Um, if we all hold the same position or we don't, we're not saying that's an issue that we choose fellowship over, we divide over. It's not. It's a secondary issue. And there's great latitude with good Christians who hold differing views here. Let me say, too, that... Um, dispensationalism broadly or the pre-tribulation rapture, this view is a minority view, at least in academic circles. This is not the majority view by a long shot. If you ask sort of the man on the street though what they think about could Jesus come at any time, the man on the street theology generally is going to be the view I go through this morning. And it's because... People that believe in the pre-trib rapture of the church are the ones that have written a lot of books and sold a lot of books. And they're on a lot of radio programs and a lot of television programs. So I just want you to know, it's a minority view broadly. In academic circles, this is not the view. This is not to say sort of, uh, obviously I hold it, so I'm not saying it's a sub-view or not. I hope you believe it. I hope you believe what I'm going through this morning. John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, David Jeremiah, Charles Stanley, John Wolford, a bunch of other people, they teach the same thing. So we're not in left field. But just broadly, this is not the majority view. We'll make some sense. And hopefully when we're done, whether you absolutely agree with this or not, you'll know what this viewpoint says about the rapture of the church, the day of the Lord, and then what would follow that, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So that's just a long introduction. Apologies for that. Into Second Thessalonians chapter two. We'll read this morning verses one through eight. And if you have a study sheet, that's the Holman Christian Standard Bible translation you've got. We'll really only be touching on the first three verses here. Next week, we'll look at this same passage and extend it just a little. Lord willing, to look at the man of lawlessness that's brought up in the text today. So reading from 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter as if from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. That day will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary, publicizing that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you about this? And you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. Now, before we jump into this text specifically and the issues that it brings up, It is an interesting thing to note that Paul was in Thessalonica for a very short time. If you remember the story in Acts, it gets so hot and heated in persecution, the church wants him, the brand new church, wants him to leave because they think it will get quieter with Paul's departure. And it does, which is not to say they're not suffering, but Paul was there only very briefly. And yet, the key concerns they're asking Paul about are prophetic issues. And that means that Paul, in this very brief time, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming Jesus Christ in this town, he was bringing up prophetic issues in that context. I'm only here a short time, and this is what's important. The gospel first, but not long after. Paul's not there long He's talking about eschatology, about prophetic elements. That's telling, that's significant. So why was this so important to Paul? And why did he make sure that this group he's with very briefly knows something about what God says is going to happen in the future? For most of us, prophecy, eschatology is a last thing we consider. The study of the last things is the last thing we consider. For Paul, it was among the first. So why is that? And why should that be important to us? Let me suggest two reasons here. The first is this. If you happen to live in a place or a time like the Thessalonian church where there's suffering and there's persecution, you may start feeling like they did. This is out of control and maybe we missed the mark. Maybe maybe uh, God isn't the God Paul said he was. Or if this is the real God, why are we suffering? Why does life look so hard? And so Paul told people who were instantly enduring persecution for their new faith in Christ, he tells them something that comforts them and it encourages them. And it gives them a frame of reference that says, hang in there, stick it out, because God is in control. And Jesus will come and you will be saved and it will be worth it. So These prophetic elements were meant to comfort new Christians in the midst of suffering, and they can still do that for us today. Whether it's just suffering in general from what life throws at us or if it's direct persecution and suffering, Paul wanted them to know God's in this. God hasn't lost control. You've trusted the right God. This is the right thing. Hang in there. The other thing is this. Paul simply had a high view of prophetic scripture. He had a high view of the things God said would take place in the future. If you talk to most Christians today, no show of hands this morning, do you have a, a theology of the last things? Do you, do you have a, have you worked this out, how you think these prophetic scriptures come to pass? Most of us say things like, you know what, it's just too complicated so no, I don't. I don't know. I know God wins in the end, but otherwise it's too complicated. Or no one really knows, which means I shouldn't bother. You know, if there's still arguments going on over this today, if smarter people than me haven't worked it out, then why should I try? Why should I bother? And I don't see how it applies to my life. There's all kinds of reasons why we sort of put eschatology as a real secondary issue when For Paul, this study of the last things was actually one of the first things he taught these new Christians. So I would just challenge us that our view of the prophetic elements of Scripture should match Paul's and God's. And if you do a count of the verses in the Bible that have to do with the prophetic issue, they're almost one-third of the Bible. So God talks a lot about future things. That's important to Him. It should be important to us also. Last on this, in the big picture, God means for prophecy to encourage us and to draw us closer to himself. In Isaiah, and I think you've got these references on your study sheet, in Isaiah particularly, God says over and over and over again, he says, you'll know I'm God because I'll tell you what happens before it does. And if you can find another God who can do the same thing, you could trust him too. But I'll prove I'm God because I'll tell you what happens before it happens. Over and over in Isaiah, the second half of Isaiah. So God uses prophecy as one of those things that draws us to him and say, no, you are the real deal. The omniscient God knows the future and the omnipotent God controls the future. So God said through Isaiah, it's important for you to understand, I display my power, my omniscience, my omnipotent, that I am who I said I was through fulfilled prophecy. And then secondarily, drawing us to himself. When John was receiving these heavenly visions, and there's an angel there, and the angel's so glorious, you know, he falls down to worship him. The angel says, don't do that. You know, I'm a servant just like you. Worship God. And then he says this about Prophecy. This is from Revelation 19:10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. At the end of the day, prophecy is supposed to draw our hearts closer to God. And specifically from the New Testament period on, prophecy is supposed to draw our hearts towards Christ. You know, there is a certain fascination for some in prophetic elements and it's all about who is 666? Who is the antichrist? Is he born Is he alive on the earth today? And the focus becomes the Antichrist because it's this thing of real interest. If we're more interested in the Antichrist than Jesus Christ, then we're missing the value God means for us to have from the prophetic scriptures. So, last John 15, 15. This is another reason to read your Bibles seriously about prophecy. Jesus said there that you're more than servants and you're more than servants because I'm telling you everything my father told me. You're my friends because I've revealed my heart to you. And the prophetic scriptures are part of God's heart to us. So when we take seriously the prophetic scriptures, we're being friends to God in the best way. He's told us these things because they matter to him. And he wants them to matter to us as well. So that's just a prophecy in general. Why the confusion and what misunderstanding is Paul trying to clear up in this text in 2 Thessalonians 2 this morning? If you look back there at verses 1 and 2, he says, We ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter as if from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Someone, and Paul doesn't make clear, here. someone has come behind Paul to this group and they've taught something he didn't teach. And someone had come in and said, guys, this suffering you're experiencing, this is the day of the Lord, you're in it. And they're confused because Paul had told them, you won't be in the day of the Lord. You'll be saved from the day of the Lord. So they're wigging out. Paul, what's the deal? Is this the day of the Lord? He says, No, this is not the day of the Lord. And he's going to take them back to things he already taught. But that's their confusion. So we're going to go back with Paul, back to 1 Thessalonians, and we'll run through some verses here to see what he'd already told them. But essentially, he says, You're not in the day of the Lord, and in fact, you can't be in the day of the Lord because certain markers on God's calendar have not yet come to pass. So, no, you're not there, and you can't be. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, at verses 9 and 10, Paul's first letter to this group, he says that you guys turned to God, you turned away from idols to the living God, and you were waiting for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who saves us from the wrath to come. And we'll pick up on those two elements here that they were waiting for Jesus from heaven, for this call from Jesus, for Jesus coming back for them from heaven. If you look in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 and 12, uh, Paul there wrote, seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. As we commanded you would have been verbally when he was still there with them. So that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. When this group heard the gospel, they believed in Jesus, and their first response, Paul records, is they were waiting for his son from heaven. And apparently in that context, while Paul was still there, people had started to talk about quitting their job. Because if Jesus can come any moment, why bother? So we're going to quit our day jobs and we'll be ready for Jesus' return. And by the way, if you follow movements in the last uh, couple hundred years here in the United States, last year's the most recent, someone sets a date for Jesus' return and people really, they get rid of all their money, they sell their homes, and some of them literally go out and sit on a hill, and wait for Jesus. You saw this in the 1800s at least two or three times as well. That's what they were doing. We're waiting for Jesus. We're quitting our day jobs. And when Paul got wind of this when he was still there, he said, we commanded you, work. He reiterates that here in his first letter. If you go to 1 Thess 5.14, he says there, we exhort you, brothers, warn those who are Irresponsible. This is the Holman translation again. The American Standard, I think, says admonish the unruly. These were people who quit their jobs and they're wasting their time. And they're bothering other people. They're unruly. They're bothersome. He basically says get back to work. You'll see later here in 2 Thessalonians 3, it's still an issue. So he winds down this short letter talking to them about going to their day jobs making a living, while they're waiting for Jesus. They were supposed to remain faithful where God had them. Don't quit your day job. We don't know when that moment might be. They believed it was imminent. We don't know when it is. So you stay faithful right where God has you. Let me be quick to add on this, too. These were not uh, Cretans. When you read Paul's letter to Titus, he, uh, he reproves some of the folks there because their own prophets, Paul said, said these guys are lazy and they're gluttons and other things. That's not true of the Thessalonians. This is a group that's enduring persecution, hardships for Christ. This is not a group likely to just be lazy and say, we're just going to lounge and depend on others. This is a group that's suffering. So they're waiting for Jesus from heaven. They believe Jesus could return at any moment. When Paul described what that would be like, you see that in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord." If you hear the term rapture today, that's usually the term that that we use. Here in the English, it says caught up. In the Greek, that's harpazo. And when the scriptures were being translated into Latin, it was rapturo. That's why we say rapture. That's based on the Latin word. But it means to be seized. It's as if a hand from heaven reaches down and grabs us and lifts us up. And that's the rapture, the harpazo. That's what they're waiting for. And Paul says, this is what it'll be like. 1 Thessalonians 4. So this was a group of people waiting for Jesus' imminent return. So so focused on that, so convinced of that, they were quitting their jobs. That's one element. The other one you see back in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 is Paul told them, you're going to be saved from the wrath of God. You're going to be saved from the wrath of God. Now, If you look in chapter 2, verse 14, and chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, you can see that Paul had told them, guys, you're Christians, you're going to suffer for Christ's sake. You are going to suffer. What you won't suffer is the wrath of God. You're going to suffer for Christ, that's a given. What you won't suffer is the wrath of God. In the context of... The day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, if you're in your Bible, you can look there at verse 2, Paul's talking about the day of the Lord, and then at verse 5 he says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses this term wrath and the day of the Lord interchangeably, and he taught that the Thessalonians would be saved from God's wrath in the day of the Lord. That's why they're distressed. Paul, if this is the day of the Lord, we missed something. We thought we understood this from you. You're saying, someone else is saying now something entirely different. What gives? Where are we? Paul says, no, you'll be saved from God's wrath in the day of the Lord. So, these believers believed at least three things Jesus could return for them at any moment. We call that imminence. They would be caught up to meet Jesus in the air along with believers who had already died in a resurrection, and they would escape a time of God's wrath, Paul also calls the day of the Lord, that would follow their being caught up with the Lord. In Second Thessalonians here, Paul makes clear that the day of the Lord could not have come because two things haven't happened. And by the way, You cannot believe in what we call imminence that Jesus can return at any moment if there's anything else on God's calendar that has to happen first. And related to the day of the Lord, Paul says that day cannot come. It cannot come. It will not come unless two things happen first. This apostasy comes first, verse 3. This falling away or this rebellion. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. So Paul says, guys, look, anything else aside, the day of the Lord can't be here unless these things have happened. This general rebellion against God, think of Psalm 2, and this man of lawlessness that we'll talk about just a little bit more here in a minute, appearing and being revealed to the world. The day of the Lord can't happen unless this happens first. So so just to be clear... You cannot biblically or logically believe Jesus can come at any moment if there's anything else on God's calendar that must happen first. Does that make sense? I would be waiting for the incidents before Jesus coming so that I'd know, okay, maybe he's around the corner. So you cannot believe in imminence Jesus can return at any moment if anything else is on the calendar in front of that. Now, to the specifics on the day of the Lord, hang in there. I know this is a little dry. It's a little, uh, it's sequence and it's a number of texts we probably don't read very often. Uh, Paul says there, 2 Thess 2, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Verse 3, that day will not come. So what is the day of the Lord? What is it? What is Paul referring to? If you were among the few Jews in Thessalonica that Paul had spoken to originally, this would be a familiar term to you because it's used repeatedly in the Old Testament, 23 times in the Old Testament, most frequently in Zephaniah and Joel, six and five times respectively. It's used five times in the New Testament. And other terms are also used to describe the same time period, that day or the day, sometimes the day of Christ Jesus. You can look these up, and what you'll see is this. In almost every use, this refers to a time of God pouring out really hard judgments on people on the earth. Some of these have already happened. So if you read Isaiah 13, God calls this period that was future, when Isaiah said it, the day of the Lord. And it describes the destruction of Babylon by the Medo-Persian Empire. It describes it before it happens. And God called that period the day of the Lord. And what was it? Well, it was a time of great judgment. And Babylon was overwhelmed by the Medes and the Persians. And that was sort of a taste of what the day of the Lord would look like in the future. I want to read through just one passage here so you get some sense of what the Jews understood and what Paul understood. The Old Testament had spoken about the day of the Lord. This one's from Zephaniah 1, verses 14 through 18. Zephaniah wrote, "...the great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching." Listen, the day of the Lord, the warrior's cry is bitter, a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, destruction, desolation darkness and gloom, clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet blast, battle cry. I will bring distress on mankind. They will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Blood poured out. Their silver and their gold will not be able to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And you'll see repeatedly in these Old Testament examples, the day of the Lord is the day of God's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy. He will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants on the earth. You can imagine if you're that Thessalonian church and you are suffering already and someone tells you this is the day of the Lord, this would not be welcome news to you. This is what Zephaniah was talking about. But Paul told us, no, this is not what we would get, so it gives. I want to put this in the context of some other verses, too. I'm just going to run through rather quickly here. But uh, by the way, go to the adult Sunday school if you want lots of specifics on this, on options for understanding these texts and uh, a much fuller development. We're we're only sort of hitting high points here this morning. In Daniel 9, there's a prophecy called the uh, 77s or 70 weeks. In the Hebrew, it just means 70 periods of seven most assume these are periods of years. Daniel had been praying, the angel sent to him, and the angel gives him this prophecy. We do, know, do we need a fan on, guys? Do we, can we turn a fan on? Uh, the exhaust fan? Uh, yeah, I think the room will be locked, but yeah, it's a little stuffy. The angel told Daniel that God has set a calendar. God's got a timeline. And God's going to tell you what it is. And here it is, Daniel 9, starting at verse 24. Seventy weeks, 70 periods of seven, again, we assume these are years, so 490 years total, are decreed about your people, that would be the Jews, your holy city, that would be Jerusalem, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, And you guys let me know if you can hear okay in the back with the fan on. Because Brent can turn it up. We're good. Okay. Uh, From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be 7 weeks and 62 weeks. This would be a total of 69 periods of 7, 483 years. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and we'll have nothing. That would be the crucifixion. The people of the coming prince, that's not Jesus, that's not the Messiah, the people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The group that destroyed the city and the sanctuary historically, of course, were the Romans. Now, at verse 27, he says, He, that coming prince, this is the person we typically would call the Antichrist, The coming prince will make a firm covenant with many for one week, one period of seven. And that's what we've got left in Daniel's prophetic calendar. We've got one seven-year period left. There's going to be a covenant for one week, but in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. So you got this very, very specific time frame God gives Daniel through this angel to say there's 490 years set aside for you, your people, your city, and your Messiah. And if we take this literally and it's 70 periods of 7 years total and 69 until Messiah is cut off... That would be 483 years. So from King Artaxerxes' decree in Nehemiah 2, verse 1, in 445 B.C., that was a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Earlier decrees had allowed the Jews to rebuild the temple. This was specific to the city. That was in 445 B.C. until Jesus' crucifixion was, guess how long, 483 years, 69 periods of seven years, 483 years. So that would mean that there's one seven-year period left on God's calendar. And that last seven-year period is when a coming prince that Paul calls the man of lawlessness and John calls the beast in the book of Revelation or the Antichrist in 1 John, he's going to come and make a covenant with the Jews that he will then revoke and he will proclaim himself to be God. And it's this last seven year period of Daniel's prophecy, or it's at least the last half, three and a half years of that seven year prophecy, that Paul calls the day of the Lord. So, very specific timetable. That first element was all fulfilled literally. You know, it's 483 years till Jesus was cut off and had nothing in the crucifixion. But there's a seven year time frame left that we have not seen. If you switch to Jeremiah chapter 30, God there through Jeremiah describes a time period that is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Starting at verse 7, God said, How awful that day will be, there will be none like it. A time coming up of trouble that will be unique in the history of the world. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob. Jacob here is a title for the nation of Israel, his descendants. But he will be delivered out of it. It will be, in the history of the world, a unique time of trouble, but Jacob, Israel, will be delivered out of it or through it. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, I will break his yoke from your neck, tear off your chains. Strangers will never again enslave him. They will serve the Lord their God and I will raise up David their king for them. So in Jeremiah, God says there's going to be a time of intense persecution and suffering, but Israel, the nation, will survive. They'll come through, and they'll come through to a period in which a Davidic king will be raised up to rule over the nation of Israel. If you go forward to Matthew 24, this is Jesus speaking And this is the Olivet Discourse, and the disciples had asked him, because he'd said, this temple, it's going down. And they said, well, Lord, tell us about this. What's the time frame? What's the timetable for this? And the sign of your coming. And so Jesus began talking about prophetic future events. And starting at verse 15 there, he said, When you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. You know, if you look back at Daniel and say all that was already fulfilled, there's a problem because Jesus quotes Daniel and says, this has not happened yet. It's going to be future from Jesus' time frame. It hadn't happened yet. There's a lot of things, by the way, in Daniel's prophecies that have been historically fulfilled. We know that, especially chapters 10 and 11. And it reads like a newspaper of events of the wars between uh, the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic empires in Syria and Egypt. And it's so specific that people have assumed that it was written after the fact because they said God wouldn't be this specific. But Daniel says this was prophetic in his day. So what Jesus is talking about, he quotes Daniel and he says it's future to his time frame that someone would stand in the temple, declare himself to be God, would desolate the temple. He says, those in Judea must flee to the mountains. When this happens, when you see this man doing this, flee. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. Verse 20 is significant. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. That time there will be Great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will. That sounds a lot like Jeremiah 30. This time in the history of the world that's unique for its period of suffering, unless those days were limited, no one would survive, but those days will be limited because of the elect. Jesus calls this time great tribulation, the worst the earth will ever see, just like Jeremiah 30. Notice, too, here, it's important. The frame of reference Jesus gives is to Jerusalem, and it's to a temple, and it's to law-keeping Jews. The church is not seen here. The Jewish nation is seen here. They're in, the, they're in their land. They're worshiping in their temple. They're keeping Sabbath. This is not the church. When Jesus describes his second coming, at the end of this period of great tribulation, all of his references are to the Jewish nation and what's going on in the Middle East. He does not bring up the church here, though he does earlier in Matthew 18. That's significant. And last, just very briefly in Revelation, Jesus addresses the churches in Revelation chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 4, John is called up from earth to heaven. And for two chapters, he's part of this group of worshippers in heaven, worshipping the Lamb of God. When God descends to the earth again in this vision, in these prophecies at chapter 6, through chapter 18, the church is not present again. It's all about the Antichrist. It's about Jews being sealed. It's about the nations of the earth. It's not about the church. Now, Jesus has no problem addressing the church. He did for three chapters at the beginning. The next time you see the church come up in the book of Revelation is chapter 19. And in chapter 19, after the Babylon the Great, a harlot, a prostitute, a false bride, a false church. Babylon the Great is judged in Revelation 17 and 18 and destroyed. And after the would-be imposter, so to speak, the prostitute is judged, the real bride of Christ sits down to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. And after that marriage supper of the Lamb to Jesus' bride, the church, that's when you see the second coming in Revelation 19. Does that make sense? So the church simply is not there in all the prophecies about the day of God's wrath on the earth, and the bowls are said in this context to be pouring out God's wrath upon the earth, you simply do not see the church mentioned there. You do see the nations of the earth. You do see the nation of Israel. You do see the man of lawlessness Paul brings up here. So you and I are called to look forward to and to anticipate the appearing of the Lord Jesus at the rapture and the marriage supper that follows and not the man of lawlessness in the day of the Lord. That's a really fast. That's a really fast wrap up through a bunch of stuff. I hope this is helpful. It, you may just feel confused, and so let me give you my uh, a way that's easy for me to think about this biblically. And it's two very, very briefly, I'm almost done. Uh, references in Genesis. In Genesis five, God is giving a list, a genealogy, and you know genealogies can be very interesting by the way. So there's a list of genealogies and it says so-and-so lived so long and he begot so-and-so. And And he had other sons and daughters and he died. So-and-so begot so-and-so. He had other sons and daughters. He lived this many years and he died. Now there's an exception in that genealogy. So, verses 18 through 24, Jared fathers Enoch. And Enoch lives X number of years and he has a son named Methuselah. And then it says, and he had other sons and daughters, and he didn't die. Enoch walked with God. That means Enoch was a man of faith. Enoch walked with God. Then he was not there, because God took him. Enoch, a man of God, a man of faith, is walking out his life, and God simply reaches down and snatches him off the earth. Enoch is brought up again in Hebrews 11. Enoch did not die. He was translated in a moment. He never saw death. Elijah, you see that in the Old Testament too, but here in Genesis, Enoch's the only one that breaks the pattern. Enoch never died. He was snatched by God, taken off the earth up to heaven. However, in this same genealogy, He has a grandson named Noah. And Noah is also a man of faith because God calls him righteous. Now, Noah has a very different life than his grandfather. Very different indeed because Noah obeys God's command and he builds an ark. And he and his family get on. And Noah and his family, they endure the wrath of God being poured out on the earth in the flood waters. But they are saved through the flood. And Noah and his family come out safe on the other side of God's wrath being poured out in judgment. And they live to populate a cleansed earth with a totally new chance to start life over again. I hope this is ringing some bells for you. So Enoch sounds a lot like the church to me. And it's not quite the same language in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament with Paul's word. It's not harpazo here. But it means taken, laid hold of and taken to myself. Enoch is simply taken to God, never dies. His grandson, though, goes through the wrath of God's judgment on the earth but isn't killed. He survives. And it's he and his descendants who live to populate a new era. And we, I believe, are like Enoch. And God could at any time reach down and seize us and catch us up and take us home to himself. But Israel, the Jews, they're going to, like Noah, they're going to suffer through a time of great persecution and God's wrath being poured out on the earth. But as Jeremiah said, they're going to survive it. God's promised them. And they're going to live to start over, just like Noah did, in the kingdom of God on earth. That's my take. I'm sticking with it. Some people accuse Christians who believe in a pre-trib rapture of simply being escapists and wanting to get out of trouble. Guys, there's trouble anyway. You're not going to get out of it. And those people in the time of the tribulation, they're no different than us. It's not, that has nothing to do with anything. How do you make sense of these texts? And are you and I free biblically to live every day as if Christ could call us today? If there's anything on the calendar before that happens, you cannot. Because you know, no, the Antichrist has to come first. If you and I are waiting for the second coming, it cannot happen today. Can't happen. Impossible biblically. Because there's got to be the apostasy and the rebellion and the Antichrist has to come. The temple has to be on the earth. The Antichrist has to come in and displace the temple worship. All this has to happen before the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus. You cannot believe Jesus is coming back and calling us today or tomorrow if these things haven't taken place. And where this, the rubber hits the road for me on this, there's probably not a day I live that I don't think Jesus could call me today. I believe in the doctrine of imminence. And it changes the way I live. I truly believe Jesus could come back at any time. And I want to be ready. I want to be ready. It shapes the way I think. It shapes how I pray. It shapes what I say and how I interact with others because I really think today could be the day. And if we get to tomorrow, tomorrow can be the day. Because I don't think anything has to happen Before, just like Enoch, where Jesus reaches down and says, you're mine, I'm calling you up here, we've got a wedding supper to attend. Before he comes back at the end of the day of the Lord to set up his earthly kingdom. However you put these prophetic elements together, we need to have some sense of what God's up to. We want to be informed because God wants us to be. And we need to make sense of a variety of scriptures so that we have a sense, Lord, we are your friends and we want to know what you're up to. So if you don't hold this view, I would challenge you to change your mind soon. If you don't do that, have something that works for you so you can do honor to the word God's bothered to give us to tell us about those things in the future. Everybody agrees on this. God wins in the end, and He sets up His eternal kingdom. This view allows me to believe, and I believe biblically constrains me to believe Jesus could call for His church, His bride, at any moment, and He wants that to shape the way we live. Andrew, for sure, yeah. Lord Jesus, thanks that You've loved us, and at Your cost, You've saved us. Lord, whether we are here or with You face to face, would You... Lord, would You help us to live like we we know You? Would You constrain our thoughts and our words and our actions? And would we live as if those who are ready to see you at any moment. In Jesus' name, amen.